Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman, and I am the founder of Directional Ministries located here in Lynchburg, Virginia. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Let's go and open our, our Bibles to Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12, we're going to continue our study today through the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 42, we've talked about certain scribes and Pharisees answered and said, Master, we would see a sign from thee. And he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeking after a sign. There will be no sign given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. So the Lord here is rebuking them because he had already done all kinds of signs in front of them, yet they were still rejecting him. They were just looking for another sign to make another excuse. And he actually calls them an evil and adulterous generation because they were being led by sight and not by faith in accepting his testimony. And then he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will actually rise up against this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. In other words, a mere mortal went to Nineveh, did far less than I've done for you, and they actually repented. Therefore, they'll stand in judgment of you one day. And then he gives another comparison. The queen of the south or the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment with this generation and will also condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of a mere mortal by the name of Solomon. And now and she believed everything. And yet one greater than Solomon is standing here in front of you and you're rejecting everything that I say. And then he goes on in verse number 43, when an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return unto my house from whence I came. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than he himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also to this wicked generation. Now, last time we were together, we were talking about how many simply interpret these verses to mean that our Lord was speaking about the issue of demon possession. As a matter of fact, I've heard them used as a proof text to show that it is unwise and useless to cast a demon out of a lost person. However, just a casual look at the context would indicate that our Lord was simply making an analogy for the generation of his day and not necessarily addressing the issue of demon possession. In these verses, our Lord is addressing, he is speaking to the people of his day. We need to keep it in context. A text out of context is a pretext. Never run with a pretext. He had already described them in verses 38 and 39 as evil and adulterous. He had already told them that the Ninevites and the queen of the south would rise up and condemn them in judgment in verses 41 through 42. And now he is describing them as wicked. Why is our Lord calling them wicked? Because they were attempting self-reformation by rejecting his offer of the kingdom. He simply uses the example of demon possession to show them the foolishness of it. You see, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, fulfilling the Davidic covenant, willing to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, but they were rejecting him and saying, we don't need you. They were seeking 
self-reformation. Okay, they they didn't think they needed him. And self-reformation is like we've talked about driving a car with the front end out of line. You can stay on the road if you hold the steering wheel tightly. But once you let go, you're going into the ditch. Israel was rejecting their Messiah in the belief that he was not who he said he was. Therefore, believing that they could do it on their own. They didn't need him. So he was calling them wicked. He's calling them wicked. Now, what I want to do is I want to look down uh, where we left off. Now, that is definitely the interpretation of the text. That is the context. That is the audience that our Lord was speaking to. Okay, and he he warns them because many of them had followed the baptism of John. Many of them, he great crowds began to follow him, but after a while they turned away. In other words, their last state was worse than their first. That is the context of what our Lord is trying to say to these people. Now, what is the application there there's application there 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 can only be one interpretation it means what it means the bible says no portion of scripture is subject to private interpretation so when you gather around a little group and saying kumbaya read a verse and say what does this verse mean to you that's really irrelevant it's not what it means to you it's me it's what does it mean in the context in which it was spoken it meant only one thing if you get in that kind of situation, you just need to leave. But then a verse, while it can only have one interpretation, can have many applications. So what is the application for the church here? The necessity of transformation. We, if we aren't careful, our last state can end up being worse than our first, just like the Jews of Jesus' day. I mean, how many of us know someone who seemingly came to the Lord and are now totally in the world worse than they were before. I know many. There's a tremendous need for continued transformation. We call that sanctification in our lives. The Apostle Paul told the Romans in chapter number 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you see that? Be not conformed or take on the image of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The Bible compares our heart to a house. In it can reside things that produce much harm. In Matthew 15, our Lord said, For out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. But it can also be a source of good. In Matthew 12, 35, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. In essence, when we come to Christ, our heart, or house, is cleansed. In Hebrews 10, 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. In Acts 15, And God, who knows the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts, how? By faith. 
However, if our house has been cleansed by salvation, we must immediately begin to fill it with holy things by transformation or sanctification. We can't just leave it vacant or the unholy that left will begin to slowly creep back in. You see, scientifically, nature abhors a vacuum. If it sees a vacuum, it's going to fill it. If we do not make the effort to fill our house or our hearts with good things, then evil things are likely to return with a vengeance. For example, consider the Corinthians mentioned by the Apostle Paul. He said of them in 1 Corinthians 6.11, And such were some of you, but ye are now washed, you were sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord and by the Spirit of our God. Obviously, they were believers. They had been born again. Yet later, to these same people, in 2 Corinthians, our Lord says, or Paul says, I fear, lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found of you such as you would not. In other words, I fear that I'm going to return and I'm going to find you where you don't need to be. And as a result, you're going to see me in a way that you don't want to see me. And he says, lest there be debates and envyings and wraths and strife. So he's listing all these things, whisperings, swelling tumults. And lest when I come again, my Lord is going to humble me among you. <laughs> in other words, I'm going to come back angry at you, and that I shall bewail many of you that have sinned already, and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which you've committed. So this same group of people that have been washed and sanctified and justified, apparently the sanctification process had come to a screeching halt, and they were beginning to fill their hearts or allowing their hearts to be filled with evil again. Our hearts, too, if left empty, will yearn for other things to fill it. So, uh, Proverbs 26.11, As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool will return to his foolishness. That's what happens, I believe. You're either growing or you're going. I mean, you need to be going forward in your walk with the Lord. I mean, that's why I, you're listening to this podcast. You're hearing things maybe you've never heard before. As I study, I see things that I haven't heard before. E either way, we are actively filling our hearts, our houses with godly things. Now, if you stop doing that, the devil will oblige and he'll fill your hearts with vile things. The writer of Hebrews warns in Hebrews 3.12, Take heed, brethren lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. To depart from something you must have first arrived, but exhort one another daily while it is called a day, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of your sin. What is the deceitfulness of sin? That you're going to get away with it. That it's okay. And if you continue to do that, you're going, your heart is going to be hardened. And if we are not continually being sanctified, the writer of Hebrews says that we are capable of doing even the vilest of things. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews 10, 26, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, I mean, once you've received the knowledge of the truth and you sin willfully, there remains no more sacrifice for your sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. 
He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God, counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified as an unholy thing, and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace? That last phrase means insulted the Spirit of grace. God has poured out grace upon us. How dare we insult the spirit of grace? He's given us his son to die on the cross for our sins. How dare we trod underfoot the son of God? His son spilled his precious blood. How dare we count the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing? And how do we do these things? By not being sanctified by allowing our hearts to be hardened and turning back into the things of the world. Hebrews even warns us that by so doing, we could possibly reach the point in which it is impossible for us to be renewed again unto repentance. In other words, there could be a point of no return if we keep going down the path that we're going. And the text is Hebrews 6, 4, for it is impossible for those who have who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, many of many people have used this as a proof text of one being able to lose their salvation. Now, if that be the case, then they can't be resaved. So if you're going to teach you can lose your salvation based upon these verses, then you're also going to have to teach that you can't be saved again. Because it says here, if you did lose your salvation, that the Son of God would have to come and be crucified afresh and put to shame again for you to be resaved. That's not going to happen. However, I believe a more accurate interpretation of this text is that they could be sent to an early grave because they have committed the sin unto death. In other words, it's, it is, they have passed the point of being able to be renewed again to repentance. And of course, 1 John chapter 5, uh, verse number 16 speaks of that. And we've covered that in some of our past studies when he said, it's, if any man see his brother sin a sin, which is not unto death. So obviously that means there is a sin that is unto death. Either way, the last state of the man is worse than the first, is what our Lord here is saying. Well, listen, next time we get together, we're going to look at our Lord's family in verses 46 through 47. God bless you guys. Hope that you have a great day. Remember that God loves you, wants the best for you, and he's working all things out your good. Thank you for listening today. I also serve churches in the areas of pulpit supply, conferences, retreats, and revivals. If I can be a service to you and your ministry, I would love to hear from you. 